uh, the podcast that goes along with the website HeyAllYouZombies.com. I'm Richard Krause. On the other end of the internet tube is... Heidi Ho. Chris here. That's Chris Abel. And uh, each week we get together and we, we discuss things of an esoteric nature. We, uh, we have a look at the kind of esoteric, uh, sometimes unloved side of popular culture. Not always unloved, but just things that don't get a lot of coverage elsewhere. This week, though, I have a feeling I'm going a bit more mainstream. I usually, on this end of uh, things... I'm the guy with either the angry rant or the vaguely thought-through idea of something that I might wish to speak about, an impressionistic kind of uh, thing that happens over here, whereas Chris is my more uh, linear uh, side who uh, tends to think things through and uh, create uh, pieces that are actually worth listening to. So, uh, But before we get to the rest of this, uh, before we move on, I would like to uh, uh, go back on episode 13, which was last week. Mm -hmm. We do a thing called Movie Pistols at Dawn every week. And uh, we asked a question last week, what animal should take over Shark Week? And, you know, we often ask a question, uh, you know, what is the best movie that's taking place in one room, for instance? And Chris picks one, I pick one, we duel, we give our reasons for that, and then we put it out to the viewers. And um, I was trounced this week. Early on, I won like the first 11 of these in a row or something like that. Yeah, don't mock me with your mollusk, uh, your damn mollusk uh, Mollusks, yes, mollusks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's the big shot over there? They got three times more votes than I did. I chose uh, kittens and big cats. I wanted a feline week. I, As I said last week, I could have a show, an hour-long show that was just simply... Kittens sleeping. How relaxing. How wonderful. But no, you people didn't want that. Uh, you'd rather find out about cuttlefish and squid. But uh, all I have to say to that is you can't cuddle a cuttlefish. <laughs> I think it was can. my good marketing because I actually rebranded it as aliens underwater. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, went for, I went for people uh, with the soul. And apparently it didn't work out very well <laughs> uh, for me. Anyway, you win that. Later on in the show, we will... Uh, uh, give you a chance to vote again on a new topic. Uh, of course, that, that poll stays up all week, so you can easily vote uh, whenever you like, but uh, um, we'd like it if you voted. And frankly, vote for this guy. I'm getting tired of losing. <laughs> you know, and, and also, uh, because you know this series is on YouTube, people get a chance, and I have noticed people are watching the older episodes, the first right. uh, you know 10 that we've done. And if you're watching an older episode and you see a Movie Pistols topic or anything, by all means, uh, write in and deliver you know suggestions. We don't mind if it's an older episode. I'd love to hear about you know still movies that were shot in one room yeah. or your favorite ticking time bombs, things mm -hmm. like that. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, no, there's lots of stuff to talk about. This week, uh, in my usual habit of uh, you know choosing kind of topics that are a little bit ephemeral as opposed to your your more uh, grounded <laughs> in mollusks and uh, science, uh, things that you like to talk about. Yeah, I, I, you know, this week was uh, an exciting week uh, for me, an exciting day yesterday. We take these on Thursdays, or on Tuesdays, rather. And so Monday, yesterday, uh, these arrived in the mail. Ooh. This, this is the copy of my new book. And uh, the, what this is, what this represents to me, this is like the longest, and this is like a baby and this was the longest labor ever. Two years uh, from the from the time that I first sort of had the idea uh, to write about a movie called The Devils. The book is now called Raising Hell, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils, to the point at which I sold the idea and then 
uh, did all the interviews and wrote the book. And I just wanted to talk a, just a little bit about kind of more than anything, just sort of how it made me feel. Because yesterday, as I as the, the box arrived, I couldn't help but think back. This is, uh, I think, the eighth book that I've written. And uh, I remember uh, my entire life up until about 1998, I think, was when my first book came out. I wanted to write a book. Always. I tried several times. Nothing much had happened with them. Uh, I had, when I was about 15, I wrote a book about the Rolling Stones. I bet you that's worth reading. Uh, probably it was just like, I think they're awesome. Or as, you know, as many ways that you could possibly imagine, or written over and over again. But, uh, but so finally I write the first one. And uh, they, what happens is you, you write it you hand it in, it goes through editing, all that stuff that you've always heard about. And then there's a long gap. There's a gap while, you know, things are typeset. And there's another, then you have another quick look at it to make sure that all the paragraphs are in the right order and the words aren't, uh, you know, all spelled backwards or something. And then you approve that. And then there's another way. And then there's a long gap where really nothing happens because it's gone to the printer and things are happening. Apparently, the covers get printed separately. And because uh, there's a lot of colors on them, they have to cure for a while. And so it's a, it's a process, right? So you're away from it. You're, you're after you know a year or two of working on something really intensely you're you're just taken away you're out of the, the game there's nothing more you can do you can't go in and go oh just one more thing which i'm famous for i just want to add in oh I, you know you know i'm fun big on that so well especially if you're trying to write you know a book that's sort of the definitive book yeah. on something which is uh the case here well something well things keep coming up so i mean for instance okay well yeah on this book on the raising hell book uh, it's a book about uh, Ken Russell, the, who directed, you know, The Devils, uh, The Music Lovers, Women in Love, I and mean, it goes on and on and on, Tommy, some of my favorite movies. And he's written, he, he directed this movie, which was then banned and, and, and uh, censored all over the world. But it's a, it's a really, it's, it's an interesting book, and I tell them, I recreate the story here of the collaboration that it took to get this movie made. So today, for instance... Uh, you know, ironically, the day after I get the final copies, really, there is no way more for me to go back and change anything more unless, you know, another edition comes out uh, in a year or two. And uh, so today on my radio show, I have a guy called Roger Christian on. Roger Christian is, uh, he was on to talk about his friend, Tony Scott, who passed away this week. But he also you know, worked on a few little movies you might have heard of, like Star Wars. He won an Academy Award for the set decoration on that. And Alien, he was nominated for an Academy Award there, Life of Brian, things like that. So we're chatting, you know, in the green room. And I've, I've, I've met him several times. What I didn't realize and what kills me now is that he also worked with Ken Russell quite closely on a movie called Mahler, uh, which was 1974, so a few years after this, but he knew uh, Ken Russell really well. And one of the sort of enigmas for me while writing this book uh, was a man named Derek Jarman. And Derek Jarman is the guy that designed uh, the, the look of the movie, The Devils. Well, it turns out Roger, my new friend who was in the studio today, knew Derek Jarman really well. So here I've had this guy at my fingertips all this while, didn't realize that the wealth of knowledge that he had for me and it's too damn late to do anything with it for this book anyway. But so to get back to this, so, so the first book, my whole life, I wait, I wait, I wait. And then uh, they send over the box. A big crate arrives and it's got 25 copies of the book. And that's what you get, 20 or 25 copies. And I just sat back and I, I, I looked at this box for like a couple of hours, I think. I just stared at it. I knew what was inside. I was dying to see the book. But I knew that as soon as I 
uh, ripped open that box and pulled them out, um, that was it. That dream was over. That dream of seeing my name on the spine of a book was done. And now I'd have to do it again or I'd have to come up with something else. And it was really like a, a, a crazy moment for me. It was that, that uh, being extraordinarily happy on one hand that this finally happened, that I finally did this thing that made it to print. And, you know, I can, uh, I can show you probably here. I don't know if you can see, but there's a wall of books over that way. Uh, and, and my books are, are wedged in there somewhere. And, and uh, so, you know, as happy as I was to have it, but I was also kind of, you know, sad that that moment was gone. That one fleeting cool moment of like, this is a completely new and unusual feeling that I'll never, ever have again. But I kind of got it again yesterday when this came out because I really think that this is a different kind of book for me, you know, and this is a book that I had a lot invested in, I think, just in terms of, of the amount of work that went into it and, and uh, the amount of, of uh, interest and in how obsessive I got about it while I was writing it. Uh, and that's really, I mean, there's no story here. I just wanted to kind of talk about that kind of great exciting exhilarating feeling that i had uh that it hasn't that i haven't had on a project for a long time you know mm -hmm. when when that that first moment where you see something and you go oh wow that's so cool and i can't believe i did that or i was a part of that that's what i had yesterday when the devil's book came yeah and you're gonna have some um continued fantastic moments when you go into a store and you finally see it on a shelf and next to books that you finally feel maybe it's worth to, to stand next to, right? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I hope so. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, listen, it's, it's, you know, it, it's exciting to see it in the, uh, in the bookstores for sure. It's exciting. I, I've, I've had this experience where I've been on the subway and uh, I've seen people reading my book on the subway. That was pretty cool. That was pretty That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I just have to stop myself from going, my goodness, that looks like an interesting book that you're reading, sir. What a fascinating book. Tell everyone how fascinating that is. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, if, if you don't work in this industry, um, you know, you may have once upon a time been writing uh, in high school. I did in my English writing class. And right. you dream of one day maybe publishing a book and seeing it in the store. Is that the reality is when the day comes that you might be offered the chance to actually get a book deal, uh, it's not going to be a project that is going to be personal. It's not going to be any of the projects that you dreamed of. It's, you know, um, uh, the first couple of conversations that I had were things like, was Chris Abel's top gadgets of 2012? Or yeah. uh, I had a meeting with a, a kid's book publisher to talk about gadgets for kids. Only that didn't quite work out because, as you pointed out, it takes about three years for a book to come out. By that yeah. time in the world of technology, <laughs> it's well, over exactly. obsolete. Well, yeah. yeah. All sorts of disappointments that are waiting for you. If you do persist and you make the compromises and you get to make a book, it's not anywhere near what you might have dreamt about when you were first starting to learn how to write in high school or even at home or, or wherever the case may be. But that's not the case here. This book really is the kind of personal project that you wanted to take on, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I'll tell you, like, it's, it, you know, I, I'm sitting here uh, just sort of having a look at it. And, you know, it's like I've been down this road a few times. This isn't, you know, completely new for me. Uh, but uh, it's really exciting this time around. I think because um, it, there, this is a story 
of this movie. It's a masterpiece of a movie that no one much has seen. And I wanted to tell people about that, but I wanted to do it in the right way. And I, I, I think, well, you know, we'll knock wood here. Um, I think that I have found the right way to tell the story. I think that, you know, I, I sourced all the original people. I've got all the actors, the editor, the everybody, uh, the guy that wrote the soundtracks in there. Everyone that I could find uh, is in there to tell the real story of making this movie. And, you know, for, for movie fans and for, for anyone who, and I'm not doing a sales picture. The movie doesn't come out for ages yet. And this is, no, I just, but, but for movie fans or, or people like me, um, I think the, 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 I think they'll enjoy it, even if you've never seen the movie. And one of my uh, trademarks or one of my, my, my uh, quality control things that I do is I have a look at whatever I've done or if, I, or if I'm thinking about pitching an idea and I think, would I read this? When I buy this, and I figure if I'll buy it, there's got to be at least 10,000 other people out there like me that would do it too. So, Well, and, you know, um, based on my experience just as being a collector or yeah. uh, knowing uh, the people that I kind of do who work behind the scenes at museums or major libraries and archives, it's the books that offer a singular distinctive topic or a singular right. distinct resource that are the ones that survive over time that continue yeah. to have value. You could have sat down and written uh, a much more polished book about, say, the Rolling Stones based on you know your earlier book, right. but it would have been the 25th book that's out there on the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. This it's, book, what, what, what interested me in The Devils uh, when, I, when I first started to research this is that uh, there was very little written about it. Uh, you know, Ken Russell, I mean, the movie was such a bomb when it came out because it had been censored. And I think Ken Russell just wanted to kind of leave it behind at the time. So he's written a number of books and there's a grand total of two or three pages uh, devoted in their entirety and all across all three or four books to the movie. Uh, you know, uh, anything that Oliver Reed never wrote about it, barely spoke about it in public. Um, you know, really, there, there wasn't a great deal of, of information about this out there. And I thought, you know what, this is such a great movie and such a fantastic story uh, that I hope I can piece it together. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that, you know, it's one of those movies that, it was banned for a reason. <laughs> you know, people were really upset by it. Oh, it's going to knock people's heads back yeah, still. Yeah. Those, those films are going to resurface. They will be uh, taking on greater importance later on, and your book is going to play uh, an important part as being a companion and delivering a little bit of a, a reminder as to what was going on in the headspace of people, what the reaction of society when that film came out. You know, it's, it's important to go back and have those stories preserved so that future generations can see that. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, you know, the, this book, one of the chapters in it uh, sets the scene for 1971 when the book came out, when the movie came out, because I think, you know, th that period in history was so interesting anyway. The the uh, sort of, you know, love and peace generation was had given way to, uh, you know, the war in Vietnam and, and the summer of love was very definitely over. The Manson murders happened in L.A. There was so much sort of stuff brewing uh, that was sort of, you know, in conflict with one another, you know. And uh, the studios were falling apart. They had no idea what people wanted to see, which is the only way that Ken Russell was able to make this movie is that the studios were like, we've given up. <laughs> Everything that we try seems to bomb. And then some movie, some indie movie called Easy Rider comes along and kids go to see it. We don't know. We don't understand the world anymore. We've been making movies for 50 years, but we don't understand the world anymore. And so, you know, at the time, Ken Russell was, you know, about 40-ish, 42, which was considered to be young back in those days in Hollywood. Now he'd be oh, an yeah. old man. 
as a director, but uh, you know, it was considered young, and uh, he was brought in because he was an energetic, interesting, you know, filmmaker that was going to do something different that they hoped the kids would like. And then, as he says later on, he goes, "They were halfway through filming, and shit hits the fan because somebody at the studio finally read the script and they realized <laughs> what they were going to get to." But uh, but um, you know, the, the the book, as I sit here today, the, the, I, I, just to, to see the, the the printed copy of it. Uh, with um, you know, there's quotes on the back from Terry Gilliam and David Cronenberg and John Landis and stuff. is uh, is very exciting for me. So yeah, totally. That's uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not sitting here really, you know, trying to promote the book because oh, that'll come later, my friends. That yeah. will come later. Uh, but uh, I, but really, that you know, when I was trying to think of something that that was uh, something interesting and meaningful to me that's happened this week. And there's been a number of things that have happened this week, pop culture wise, Tony Scott killed himself. Phyllis Diller died. I'll talk about her a little bit later on, actually. But, um, uh, but I thought this was uh, just something a little kind of personal and, and, uh, and hopefully interesting it was for me. Yeah, no, I, I love hearing about it. Thanks. Um, so before I talk about my first uh, topic, I wanted to kind of do some little housekeeping here. Um, Last week, I, I spoke about uh, the accordion babes. Those oh, yes. Those beautiful yes. women out in California yeah. who are trying to promote the accordion as being cool as well as sexy. Um, since then, I've learned something very interesting about them in that they have a pretty major fan from the music industry. I'm yeah. going to reveal who, and as soon as you see it, you're going to, oh, of course, it makes complete sense. Weird Al Yankovic. No? There you go. It is. <laughs> and he's actually holding... Their uh, their pinup calendar. There. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, in terms of mainstream success, he is probably the most successful uh, non polka accordion player artist in the world. Completely, yeah. I mean, and he has, in many ways, in his entire career, been trying to make the accordion cool, yeah. uh, even though he does it through through parody. So, yeah, that was something I was pretty happy to to come across and find. That's funny. I didn't mean to step on your uh, well, okay. your. It's a good guess. All right. So um, we took care. Uh, so, yeah, I was pretty pickled. The, the <laughs> uh, and at the same time, I also think we should give a shout out to um, this past Saturday was the zombie walk in Vancouver. Oh, hey, cool. Yeah, really, really, really awesome. Uh, yeah. The people, there were more than 3,000 people who showed up. Uh, to take a look at it. this. Uh, oh, damn. I look how weird her teeth are. Look how just scary and terrifying that is. Isn't that fantastic? The way her teeth are all kind of, they yeah. look like they've been filed down. Yeah. Uh, she's a photographer. She's taken a number of photographs of a lot of the people who uh, came out. I picked what I thought were the friendliest photos for me to show. Because uh. uh, I have to tell you, what came out there um, this past week was very, very grotesque. Yeah. Some pretty amazing. I'm not even showing it. You know, what I'm showing here is very, very tame compared to what's out there. I'm going to put links so you can go follow it out. Um, well, you know, I, I've never been to the zombie walk in Vancouver, but I go to the one in Toronto every year just because I think this is pretty cool. And I'll tell you, you know, you, you see these photos and you go, wow, that is grotesque. It's terrifying. But these events are really fun. That's the, the crazy thing about them is you, you'll see uh, this woman, you know, the, the, the crazy nurse, the vampire, or the zombie nurse. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be joking around and laughing and everyone's having a good time it's such a it, it, the, the photos don't really give you an idea of what the atmosphere the tone of the events are like right completely i mean no one's taking um the the the, the visceral sort of damage that they're showing that's meant to be campy 
That's meant yeah. to be over the top, but their behavior, you know, out there, everybody's having a, a terrific time. It's a real big party. Uh, right. I'll show you another one here. I liked a zombie baby. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, I mean, that's the one thing that you get with uh, Vancouver. It's a very uh, free, very uh, creative yeah. culture. You yeah. get, so you get all kinds of people showing up. Pretty amazing. At the same time, and I've got so many open windows here, so let's see if I can find it. Do, 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 do. One moment. But uh, yeah, Vancouver wasn't the only zombie event that was happening mm -hmm. uh, there. Uh, I'm just going to pull up a couple of... Do, do, do. There it is. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, but here in Toronto on Saturday, no, Sunday. Is this a zombie, zombie car wash? This is a zombie car wash. Here we are. Right on. Yeah. So it was the third annual zombie car wash down here in Toronto. Uh, and as you can imagine, it. <laughs> yeah, something know. tells me your car might be in worse shape after you're done with <laughs> this than it was before you were going in. Oh, man, look at this. Uh, so, I mean, the fun part, of course, <laughs> is that it's like a theme park ride. You're inside your car. You've got all these people surrounding you. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. That is uh, grotesque yet fun. Yeah, yeah, fun. So pretty fantastic uh, that we had two major zombie events happen here in Canada. <laughs> everybody had fun. And, and there's uh, another one coming soon. I mean, in Toronto, they're doing the big zombie walk. Uh, it happens in October. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, so that'll be a, a great event to kind of go check out and be a part of. I wasn't too sure about the zombie car wash. I've never been. I don't have a car. But uh, apparently... All the notes and your, comments I've seen, people loved it. You know? Well, you can take your bike as well. They'll clean your bike if you have one, I, I'd heard. <laughs> wow. Um, so my topic this week, my first one is on augmented reality clothing. I, I actually <laughs> was stopped on the street the other day, and somebody wanted to chat with me and asked, is augmented reality still going on? Do people still do that technology? And the answer is yes. It's surprising. We talked about it earlier in the series about the Royal Ontario Museum using it to promote their uh, new dinosaur yeah. exhibit dinosaurs coming alive. But one of the uses that um, I haven't really um, talked about much in any of the, the, the places that I work for is the use of augmented reality in clothing. And uh, within the past couple of years, you've had t-shirts that have come out uh, down in the States and Walmart, uh, George, there's a couple of locations like that. You can actually get a t-shirt that has a logo on it. And then when somebody points their, their iPhone camera at it and they've got the right app loaded, the right. shirt comes alive. Right. So it comes alive like lights up or yeah there's there's one of animal from the Muppets and it actually has like a marquee sign around him and it all lights up there really yeah uh, there's uh, one shirt where it's got three kind of tribal heads and they right. start singing away huh. uh, pretty cool I, my attitude towards it though is that I have shirts that actually light up. <laughs> that actually right. are animated that have motors and LEDs I'm not sure why I would want to get a shirt that only uh, becomes activated when somebody pulls out their their phone and points it at the right direction, that kind of thing. But you right. know, I mean, it's 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 the novelty factor. It's kind of you know, hey, come you know, take a photo. The the company that makes those shirts, they're called Zapper. They have just announced that they've actually released a new line of hats, and I'm going to show you what the hat first looks like. Get a couple of these going here. And so, okay, so when you buy it, all it looks like is this. It's just a toque, right? And there's a logo on the the headband, as it were. Yep. Now, when somebody downloads the Zapper uh, app and then they open up their camera and they point that camera at you, 
then you get um, something that looks like this. Really? Yes. <laughs> uh, they, they actually they say you know if you remember the movie the mask it has that kind of experience where suddenly wow. you have this digital mask over your head uh, i'm going to post the video to it but it's the reason i wanted to talk about because they did such a great job yeah. in that not only does it it cover your face and make you look like a wolf but on the screen if somebody taps it the nostrils flare <laughs> the muscles in the face move you get that a little bit of a, a slaver going on there and of course they have different shirts that create different uh, right. types of characters right. so there is uh, they've got this bomb guy dude <laughs> Right. That way your head kind of, you know, explodes when somebody sort of touches upon it and activates it. And then, of course, this being, hey, all you zombies, naturally, they have to yeah. have a zombie one. Yeah. That's awesome. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and the effects are really, really well done. Uh, and, of course, the AR tracking, all sorts of things. And they, they predict that this is the kind of thing that people are going to wear these headbands. Maybe they'll go to a party. And then everyone will download the apps and, and, you know, the tracking is going to be good that you could actually have somebody say riding around their BMX bike and having a zombie head on or mm -hmm. dancing at a, a wedding reception or something along those lines. I think it's very clever. Um, I think, uh, of course the, the lifespan for this particular product isn't going to be too long. It'll be kind of like a, a novelty and a trend once you've kind of worn the hat and people take your photos, you know, six months later, it may not continue to do it. But it shows that the technology is progressing, right. that it's going beyond just simply opening up a magazine and, hey, you know, something <laughs> jumps out at you. Uh, and How it's much going, do they cost? Do we know? Um, do, 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 it, right now, they haven't actually launched the product itself. There's a big, huge shirt clothing convention that's happening in Las Vegas. Right. This is their announcement ahead of time. They're saying, hey, everybody, we got this technology. And their plan is really uh, to license it to all these big brands. Right. So while they're showing a wolf and a zombie initially, you know, um, you could have it for promotional purposes for various companies and such like that. They could jump on or turn yourself into Shrek. That's pretty cool. But it's interesting that where the, the, the technology can go forward in terms of mapping it to your clothing. One of the ideas that I thought would be fantastic is that I would love for somebody to come up with a way to recognize the little tags on clothes that give you washing instructions. Right. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm mainly a T-shirt and jean guy, but every now and then, believe it or not, I do go to a store and buy a nice blazer and then I get mm -hmm. home and it's beyond me as to how I'm supposed to take care of it right. or clean it and you pull up the little label and there's a triangle and a squiggly. I, I don't little. understand those either. Yeah. yeah. So I would love, uh, love, love, love if someone could come up with a product where you just point the camera and it sort of deciphers all that and gives you what right. the instructions are. Of mm -hmm. course, to do that, you kind of have to come up with a standardized system that involves the entire industry. But, you know, it shows <laughs> The kind those, are just, the, those are the details. That's you know, yeah. you're the ideas guy. That's just the you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about it is, uh, augmented reality when it first came out, I thought might have had the future that virtual reality had. Virtual right. reality was being hailed as the next best thing, and then it just died. It right. was never going to go anywhere. And I thought the same might happen with augmented reality, but here we are, a couple of years later, and it's still kicking around. People are still playing with it. That tells me that this is technology that has a definite future. There's going to be practical uses for it. We're playing around with it now, putting zombie heads on and, you know, taking our photos with large dinosaurs. But yeah. there will be a practical use coming down in the future. No, it's very cool. Um, it's very cool. I like the idea of it. I'm not sure, just in terms of, of 
uh, entertainment value, how often you would do it. You know, it might be cool for kids' parties. I could see maybe uh, like McDonald's using it. Like you get the hat and then you take a picture and look, you're Ronald McDonald or something. Like I can see it being used in advertising, but I'm not sure how much you would use it just on a day-to-day basis. Oh, yeah, you're right. The augmented reality Happy Meal, uh, that's definitely coming. And and you know what? I have to admit, I'll be the first one in line to go and get one just to try it out, you know? Well, except I want to be the Hamburglar. If I'm going to be anybody, I want to be the Hamburglar. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to show these pictures earlier. I forgot uh, these are these were taken uh, seconds after uh, the box of books arrived, and this I think uh, shows you more of what was going on in my head when I when I got the uh, when I got the photo, when I got the books. Now let me uh, let me take that one away, and I'm going to show you one other one. <coughs> And there's the other one of me yeah. sort of mimicking the cover of the book or trying to mimic the, uh, the look of uh, uh, Oliver Reed on the cover of the book. Anyway, those <laughs> are some photos that I took yesterday in the fit of excitement. My it's, a, peak. it's a great cover, though. And, like, it really is. Yeah. Well, it, it was done by a guy called Gary Pullen. And I've always loved Gary's stuff. And if you – I mean, you know uh, – Later on, we'll have another one. When you see uh, Oliver Reed's hair, Oliver <laughs> Reed has amazing hair in this thing. I think, I think, uh, I think for no other reason you should buy the book just because you want to own the picture of Oliver Reed's hair. <laughs> um, so, uh, other than talking about the the book and shamelessly uh, plugging that, uh, I wanted to talk about Dennis, uh, Phyllis Diller a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, this week uh, uh, was, you know, uh, started off in a in a very uh, kind of uh, ominous and strange way with Tony Scott killing himself. And we, as we sit here now on Tuesday afternoon, uh, we're not exactly sure why it happened. There was talk that he had inoperable brain cancer. Now his family is denying that. Uh, so I don't know exactly why Tony Scott took his life. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later on. That's a tease for movie pistols later. Think about it. Uh, but, um, also, that day, he killed himself on Sunday, but the news broke on, on Monday. Phyllis Diller died and was sort of, uh, she got a, a, a bit of attention, a bit of notice, but people were talking about uh, Tony Scott a little bit more because of the sort of tragic way that he passed away, and frankly, a little bit more bombastic way that he, he died. And I'll tell you, uh, Phyllis Diller, for me, I grew up watching her on television. Uh, I'm of the age where I used to stay home or stay home. I didn't have an option. I was home on Sunday nights uh, watching the Ed Sullivan show. I remember her show, the beautiful Phyllis Diller show, uh, the Phyllis Diller uh, uh, other show. She had the beautiful Phyllis Diller show was a variety show. She had another show called the Phyllis Diller show, seeing with Bob Hope, all that stuff. And when I was a kid, I'm not sure that I really understood a lot of the jokes because uh, they were not particularly adult, I don't think, but I was just young enough to not be able to look much past her kind of clown-like exterior. You know, she always wore crazy wigs, and she had that laugh, eh, 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 that sort of cackle that she did. And I think I just like, I sort of looked at her as kind of like uh, Bozo the Clown with a long cigarette uh, holder, you know. <laughs> and although she always had this, it was sort of a trademark to have a cigarette holder, although she didn't smoke in real life. She used it. She developed the use of that uh, from the nightclubs that she played in. 
and she used to use it to gauge the time between laughs. So if she told a joke that got a particularly big laugh, she would just sort of put this holder in her mouth for a second, kill time with it while people finished laughing, give herself something to do on stage, and then she'd move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think more importantly, the reason that I wanted to talk about her today is that um, because her her passing didn't get the kind of notice I, uh, because of it, it happened to coincide with Tony Scott's, um, but she was such an important figure, uh, not only because I grew up watching her on television, but there's a, generations of, of female comics, I think, that really owe her a debt of gratitude. Before Phyllis Diller, there were female comedians. Uh, there were people that were uh, humorous in the movies, women in the movies and on television, like Lucille Ball. But there weren't a lot, and there certainly weren't any with the kind of mainstream television appeal that Phyllis Diller had uh, by the time she broke out in the very early 60s. She didn't start doing stand-up until she was 38 years old. She had five kids at home. So you have to imagine uh, the support system that she had around her for someone to say, you know what, you're really funny. You should get out there and, and you know, I'll look after the kids, the five of them, and you get out there and see what you can do. Because at the time, there weren't that many female stand-up comics. And she... Uh, she sort of created that. And women, when she finally got on television, women loved her because for one of the first times in the history of the art form, there was a, a, a stand-up comic who was speaking directly to women, speaking about things that women could relate to and understand. It wasn't Henny Youngman going, take my wife, please. It was a completely different thing. And I think that, um, you know, the, the direct line between her and Joan Rivers is fairly obvious. There's an even more, to my mind, obvious line between her and someone like Roseanne. And Roseanne came out and did her domestic goddess routine, which uh, harkens back directly to the stuff that uh, uh, Phyllis Diller did in the early part of her career, where she talked about her life, and she talked about her husband, and she talked about her kids and the things that happened in her house. And um, I, I was, you know, over the last 24 hours, I've uh, looked her up on YouTube for the first time in a very long time and, and have seen clips on television. And she was funny. And, you know, you have uh, these, it's a, an old school thing. They're all one-liners. Just, you know, every joke's 10 seconds long. You don't like that one? Stick around. There's going to be another one in 10 seconds or so. And I just found that uh, uh, there was such a level of craft to the jokes, uh, to the economy of words, to uh, the delivery and the timing and the whole thing that she really is, I think, completely underrated. She was 95 when she passed away. She hadn't worked. Uh, the last time I remember seeing her was in the movie called The Aristocrats, which was 2006, where uh, it's essentially a series of comics telling the filthiest joke ever told, and she's one of them. And uh, I, I just thought uh, that she deserved uh, a little bit more of a send-off. So, Phyllis Diller, this is my tribute to you. Thank you for opening the door wide for uh, people like Sarah Silverman and, and Roseanne and Joan Rivers and, and all that came after. Yeah. Um, what was it? One joke she said, because she kept referring to herself as being quite ugly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was part of her whole thing. that She yeah. wore dresses just to enforce that. Yeah. And the one joke that she said that I like was... Uh, you know, I'm so ugly that a peeping Tom threw up on my windowsill. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that. And I love that even, you know, her her real-life imitated art sometimes. And this was obviously a, a publicity thing. But apparently it happened. Now, whether 
whether the outcome was predetermined or not, I don't know. But apparently she posed for Playboy, and Hugh Hefner said, nope, we're never going to publish these pictures, which I think is very funny. I mean, it, I'm sure that they knew that they were never going to publish them, but I love the idea because she was so self-depreciating about her looks that, uh, you know, they, they actually did the photo shoot and then didn't use the photos. <laughs> well, yeah, the interview that I read, she said that um, the initial idea was that it was supposed to be a funny photo spread. Right. I, I thought, yeah, I guess they felt that she was going to show up and, and be a, a clown in front of the camera. Right. And uh, the photographer must have thought she was good looking enough yeah. that they actually did some proper shoots. She said right. there's no nudity. She says in one shot you see a bit of leg, but there was one photo where they had her lying on a bear rug. And you could just see her her nose That's over it, top right. of the tiger's head, That's and she, funny. you know, thought that was uh, that was kind of cute. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, also I think you could make the argument that Phyllis Diller is a is a geek girl. We often I've been celebrating geek girls on this uh, podcast, yeah. and Phyllis Diller is definitely one of them in the sense that she was highly intelligent. Yeah. You have to be smart to be able to have the timing, the craft, to be able to think of these jokes, to think and perceive the world in a very different way. Uh, she was a big reader of science. She always considered herself to be sort of a science girl. And then you throw in the punk rock kind of you know sensibility, <laughs> which is really yeah. what it is. To, to yeah. grow up with like aluminum foil dresses, to have <laughs> your hair dyed and out to here. Uh, there is no difference between her and any of the punk rock geek girls that we've talked about here, other than she was there pioneering it long before anybody else. Anybody today who gets up in an outrageous green hair dye do, or anyone that goes onto a stage and, and tries to make accordion sexy, they all owe something <laughs> to Phyllis Diller because she was the first one to have to do it. And it's hard to really imagine. I, I do research some of the earlier performers, like Janice Martin, who was considered the female Elvis and had to right. go lose her career because she became pregnant by somebody who wasn't her husband and that was it and she's an amazing we've never heard of her because of it the insurmountable not wall of no but every voice in existence telling her no you can't do this it shouldn't be done and that for her to have not only the intelligence but the moxie and the toughness to be able to overcome that and and become the success that she has and and be enduring for so many years uh is just it's I can't wrap my head around it. She's just fantastic. Yeah, and uh, you know what? Uh, that uh, reminded me, the word moxie just simply doesn't get used enough. Moxie no. is a very good word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking here quickly to see if I can find uh, the, the, you know, like the, the, the best photo to illustrate what you just said of Phyllis Diller. I mean, there, and there's a, a quick Google search. Is, I mean, there's thousands of them here. I'm a little overwhelmed by... Uh, by all the photos that have come up here, but this is a pretty cool one. Let me show you this one here. Um, you know, uh, but no, I, I, I uh, she's someone too who was, I think, sadly forgotten. I mean, I, you know, in, in some ways by, by a generation. I mean, if this was uh, 1974, she would be, you know, someone who you talked about. Like, you, you know, did you see her on Ed Sullivan last night? She was hilarious. This is oh, a great picture. Is, yeah. Well, and uh, it's funny because there have been a lot of, uh, stand-up comics and comedians that have been talking about their craft in the last couple of years uh, where they cite all the people who've been very influential and you keep hearing names like Lenny Bruce, uh, right. Eddie Murphy, and that's fantastic but what the hell why yeah. not you know Phyllis Diller why why not somebody the the people from that age who maybe people today don't realize the young comics but she was an influence. Yeah I think you know uh, Lenny Bruce if you listen to those now I would suggest that they're more, his work was more interesting than actually funny. 
now. And particularly as he got closer to the end of his life where uh, his work became uh, sort of, he was angry about uh, how he had been treated by the law. And he would often, he would do a show and he would like read a, 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 an arrest report and that sort of thing and, and make comments about it. So it wasn't really stand up so much. It was almost Andy Kaufman-esque performance art, you know? Uh, so whereas Phyllis Stiller was pure showbiz, you know, she was someone who was out there to entertain with the wigs and the hair and the, oh, and the voice and everything. And, you know, uh, I, I still think it holds up and I, it, it was, it's been really fun over the last while. We'll post some of it on the site. We'll find some good YouTube clips and, and post them. And uh, it's worth having a look. And if you haven't seen it, um, in one of my other books, in one of my 100 best movies you've never seen books, um, I write about a movie called Mad Monster Party. And it was a Rankin and Bass uh, monster story. And uh, she sings a song called You're Different in it. And uh, we'll put that up on the site. I found that on YouTube, and it's worth having a look at. Oh, very cool. Well, um, my second topic today is uh, a bit of a celebration. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that has been great about the internet, the fact that it uh, has invaded most people's homes, if not everybody's homes, is that it has increased awareness and education to the fact that our society contains a certain percentage of people who are scam artists, who are con artists, who are people who have decided that an easy way to make a living is to trick people into uh, giving them money and often preying upon and feeding upon people like the senior citizens or right. people who are uh, at the low end of the rope in terms of their life, that kind of thing. This has always kind of existed in one fashion or the other, but it usually is the grifters, the kind of guys that set up little, you know, con shops inside of towns or will meet you on a train somewhere and quickly trick you out of 20 or $40. And a lot of these people, these people have been studied by psychiatrists, are just people who at a very early age realized that they could think in such a way that they could perceive how somebody could be fooled. Right. Right. Which most of us can't do, but they can. Yeah. So thanks to the Internet and a lot of email scams and phishing attacks and stuff like that, we're starting to realize that this isn't just a mythical person that appears in books and movies. Right. There are lots of people out there who try to do this every day. Uh, and so what's interesting is that eBay has made the decision that starting uh, beginning at the end of this month, they are no longer going to allow auctions or sales that involve uh, spells. Mm -hmm. potions or psychic readings right and this is fantastic for that reason because a lot of these subjects are associated with scams with yeah. people who are trying to get money out of other people and it's, it's important to understand that when we talk about this there is a big difference uh, where we're not talking about people's belief system here right just as the Nairobi print scam yeah. is not about Nairobi yeah it's not about princes it's not about large financial transactions, nor is it about people who are trying to escape a country to, you know, to avoid persecution. Right. Those are all valid things. <laughs> the Nairobi print scam is about a carefully constructed story that is designed to touch somebody's buttons at a right. point in which they're very vulnerable and get them to separate from their cash. Same thing with a lot of these auctions that appear on eBay, uh, where you have somebody that's trying to sell what they claim to be a spell or a curse or a potion that's going to promise somebody a big change in their life and it's exactly what they're looking for. It's right. kind of sad. People do fall for these. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can imagine 
people going for the like a tonic. Here's a tonic that's going to cure your cancer. Well, you're desperate. You you know it's only fifty bucks. So you think, what the hell? What have I got to lose? Nothing, you know. But the idea of buying a spell. I kind of almost believe you deserve whatever you get. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll show you an example here. This is one of the auctions that's currently uh, up, and what is being offered here are three wishes from someone who's claimed to have found a one thousand year old ancient genie. Ah. Well, you know what? They're only five ninety nine. That is awesome. <laughs> that's, that is and, awesome. But they've sold thirty nine of them. <laughs> That's and ha and the, the seller has a 99.8% positive feedback score. <laughs> which, <laughs> you know why? Don't... Because those the, the wishes are like, geez, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Oh. I don't get that. Or here's another one, and I'll, I'll show you this one. Um, -da -da. There we are. So this is an actual potion. It's described as a magical demon destroyer potion. Ooh. And the idea is that fifty-one dollars uh, as Which, well. It, it, you know, if it works, that seems like a good deal. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I mean, so how do they then? So so they just banned it outright. Just you can no longer sell these, right? Well, the way they've had to approach it. I mean, this has always been a difficult part for eBay's business since yeah. they first opened up. People. Anything that can be sold, people will try to sell on eBay. Yeah. And eBay over the years has had to deal with people trying to sell their virginity. Um, trying right. to sell organs, you know, uh, trying to sell endangered animals. It's been always murky waters for them to try to find. And, of course, the way that they have to approach it is that they have to kind of go at it in an objective fashion. You can't right. be judgmental about these things. You can't just come in and say, this is who hokum, this is who I, you know, or be objective along that. Uh, instead, what they've said is that uh, these are items that are intangible. It is very difficult for them to be able to ascertain whether someone actually sold it or whether someone actually bought it, right? Uh, you know, whether it's a, a psychic reading or whether it's a, a spell, these are things that are very difficult for them to be able to. Should there be legal hot water to kind of try to de de deliver a definitive judgment? Uh, right. In a, in addition to these things, they've also banned some other things that they deem to be intangible, such as digital art, for example. Hmm. Oh, so, in, in in what sense? I mean, digital art is. Uh, do I have any here? I mean, you know, it's 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 a, it's a physical thing. That's digital well, art, right? I mean, there's, you know, it's a, it's an image that's been reproduced digitally. Is that not right? Correct, in the sense that it's a, an image that was created digitally, but what you're holding is a physical reproduction of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's very, not what you're buying. No, what you would be buying is a JPEG. That's <laughs> right, and right. that becomes intangible because it's right. a digital copy, and you can't prove what was the original. You can't prove right. exactly right. what was the the copy. And it's, it's essentially worthless as well, <laughs> which is the other uh, the other yeah. thing. Well, the thing is that it's it's deceptive these auctions because initially, you know, your your uh, reaction is correct in that you look at it and you go, well, it, you know, they're claiming to sell a spell. What's going on here? How can it be? The problem is when you look into the description that goes below it, it's the usual con man's story right. that is being right. told, where they're promising weight loss, they're promising, uh, you know, connecting you to a lost loved one, they're promising right. financial success, and all those things that become trapped for people who are very susceptible to it. Uh, it, it is important to say that, you know, um, when we're talking about these things, and I'm, I'm against that kind of stuff, there's a world of difference between attacking this kind of scam, these kinds of ideas, and attacking someone's belief system, yeah. or attacking superstition or magic. Uh, 
everybody, I don't care who you are, has some element of a belief in you, uh, superstition, no matter what it is. So a good example is that when NASA was landing the, the, the Mars Curiosity rover, and they went through that period where they had a 14-minute delay and they had no idea what was going right, on, right, right. Uh, they pulled out little containers of peanuts and passed it around. And everybody had some peanuts. And this is a, a, a superstitious ritual that NASA does with all of their rockets. It goes back, I believe, to the late 1970s. Wow. An earlier rocket scientist had, you know, pulled out well, peanuts. Yeah, some guy liked peanuts. Launch. I mean, it's a, it's a different thing, though. Some yeah. guy liked peanuts in 1972. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's how it starts. He's not saying, a little fairy gave me these peanuts and they're it's, magic yeah, peanuts. Yeah. There is a world of difference to that, but I'm sort of saying like it's it's hard to be critical of someone who, uh, for example, is, practices Wicca right. as sort of their their lifestyle. They're not selling stuff on eBay. You know, right. that's sort of what I'm saying. There's there's somebody who sort of it gives them some sort of benefit, but it's right. hard to criticize those people when you have people when we live in buildings where there's no 13th floor, right. where you have friends that carry around little you know good luck charms like lucky rabbit's feet and stuff. Like I'm from the East Coast. It's the most superstitious place on the planet. Right. And, and someone has just, I don't know if I have it in arm's reach, but someone has just written a book about uh, the superstitions, not just of Nova Scotia, but of the South Shore, which is a strip of this uh, Nova Scotia about this big where I'm from. And there's an entire book written about them because we're all crazy from down there. I still do not allow shoes on the table at any point ever in my life. Uh, one crow sorrow, two crows joy, three crows a letter, four crows a boy. Go, I could go on. I mean, it go. It's insane how uh, creepy and weird these little things that are in the back of my head have stayed with me. So superstitions are another thing that uh, I don't frankly take them all that seriously. But I do find myself if I see one crow on the side of this road, I'm like. <laughs> This is not good. This is not good. <laughs> yeah, I, I personally don't invest a lot in in sort of superstitious. I'm not, uh, you know, worried about cats, black cats crossing my path, or I don't freak out when I break a window, but I, or mirror. But those things, I think, they do play a healthy role in society. But the danger, of course, is when they take on deeper resonance, when they become right. something that you are investing money in, in the hopes that it's going to turn your your life around. Or when we start to, you know, try to base engineering programs or, or school courses based on these sort of things. That's right. always very, very dangerous. But it's, I think it's, it's, I'm surprised it took this long for eBay to finally make this move. I'm glad that they finally have. Yeah. I mean, I, I just hate to see people uh, um, uh, getting taken advantage of, you know, the, the, yeah. the idea that someone who is ill or someone who uh, might possibly, uh, uh, you know, really be looking for something in their life uh, and thinks that they're going to find it through, uh, you know, through uh, 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 some kind of mushroom that they could buy on eBay for 50 bucks uh, makes me uh, quite angry. Uh, here's this book, Red Sky at Night, it's called, and it's all about superstitions from a very small part of the world. Not, even, I mean, in Nova Scotia, people go, so sure, man, that's tiny. And this province itself is pretty small. So that's the book right yeah. there, Red well, Sky at Night. And we can laugh at things like the Nairobi uh, email scam because that's the one everybody's had. Well, but you it's laugh funny. about it until you see someone on the news yeah. who's given them, you know, you know some 80-year-old woman who's given them $100,000 and you know, and and you you think to yourself, how could you possibly have been sucked in by that? 
And then they explain how, and you're like, wow, these guys are good. These people know what they're doing. If they get the right mark, if they get the right person, uh, you know, to involved in the sting, man, it can be, uh, the, the effects can be devastating. Right, and there's all sorts of psychological tricks. And even if you really think that you, you are well-armed with information, they can still find ways to kind of fool you. Uh, I often tell people that when they get an email, or they get a strange text message and it's yeah. promising some big prize to right. always look at the domain name and be careful because right. most of them, they don't end in .com. They don't end right. in .ca and that's usually a telltale. I've said that on here. .scam, yeah. .scam. Yeah. But you know what? I've been getting these you know, text messages on my iPhone lately that claim to be from Apple that says that I am a winner that they've drawn me. You mean those aren't true? Because I got one the other day. <laughs> and if you look at the, the link, it actually, you know, they're smart enough to create a link that starts off with apple.ca. Right. Right? Yeah. But then continues on, and, you know, after apple.com, you get dot, uh, let's see, where is it? Mine says gotprize.cc. Right. And then right. .cc is actually a small little island in the Australian territories. Oh, is that right? Right, yeah, which nobody knows. So yeah. when you see .ca, you think the rest of it is just maybe some syntax, some garbage, you know, that yeah. happens in transmission. And your your brain, which is always looking for patterns, is going to pull out apple.ca. And right. so you can see how it isn't just someone who's a senior citizen. It isn't just someone who's having a bad day that might fall for that. There are lots of people who do. And I remember when the Nairobi and print scam first started, most people around me weren't aware of it. And right. I remember people very prominent people, people who are very intelligent, yeah. sort of, you know, going through a moment where they think it's actually real and sort of yeah. asking about it, and you have to explain, no, it's not. So I'm, it's very dangerous. It's something we tend to kind of overlook in society. I'm glad that eBay is finally taking that move, and I hope that they, they look at other auctions and other areas in the same way. Here's another way, uh, you know, I've, I've got my phone up here to one of these things. Your entry in last month's drawing won you a free iPad. Enter, I'm not going to say the number, at, and then this .cc number, so that we'll know where to ship it. But the thing that uh, should be a dead giveaway here, too, is the number that it's from. Is it area code 443? So just wow. look for that. I don't know, 443, I'm not <laughs> sure exactly where that's from. But I have a feeling it's not from wherever Apple's located. No. Well, and you also have to remember that, especially on eBay, you have a lot of uh, teenagers. Oh, it's or, from Maryland. Or, oh, interesting. 443 and 667 are a telephone area code serving the eastern half of the U.S. state of Maryland, including Baltimore. Interesting. <laughs> well, and that's probably not where the actual person is located. They're bouncing the number. Yeah. This yeah. is somebody who's probably in Ukraine or right. in Nairobi. Yeah. But yet we do, you know, with the eBay uh, auctions, you do get a lot of teenagers are online. They, they you know, do become very susceptible, even the ones that seem to be very, very intelligent. There was a case over in England where uh, there were two girls who ended up being fooled by their best friend who, drew, who convinced them that she was – two other guys <laughs> and actually was dating them for a while. She would, you know, wow. yeah. And it's amazing. Like, because all this girl did was show up in a hoodie and pretend to be a guy. And she convinced them to, that she was their boyfriend. Anyways, the, this long story, 12 year olds, 13 year olds can be very susceptible to stuff that you would expect them to see right through right away. Uh, mm -hmm. And they may be, you know, intense, uh, um, infatuated with the idea of being able to cast magic or cast a spell and and who knows what kind of a person they'd be connecting with on yeah. ebay 
I guess there's 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 something to be said for the hopefulness of people, <laughs> but gullibility goes along with that too, you know. <laughs> but people, I think, you know, want to make connections. They definitely want to make connections, and sometimes, you know, this is a way that they do it. And unfortunately, you know, you end up getting kicked in the butt for doing it. All right. So All we're right. at the end, uh, and uh, you know, as promised, we're going to play another round of movies mm -hmm. and films at dawn. This one is going to be dedicated to the great filmmaker Tony Scott who uh, just passed away this uh, past weekend. And yeah. so th the question here is um, what would be your favorite or the best of the movies that Tony Scott made? He made so many. Well, uh, he, he, yeah, it is. And I, I think we're going to have to limit this uh, to just movies that he directed because yes. he produced <laughs> a million things as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, your, your choice, uh, um, here, let me just look here. I'm just going to give you a, a, a rundown here. All right. Um, you, uh, let's have a look here. So in terms of, of stuff, you've got everything from uh, The Hunger, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Revenge, Days of Thunder, The Last Boy Scout, True Romance, Crimson Tide, there's a good one, uh, The Fan, Robert De Niro, Enemy of the State, Spy Game, Man on Fire, Domino, Deja Vu, The Taking of Pelham, 1, 2, 3, and Unstoppable are the films that I think we would include in this. Totally. And I have to admit, I've seen them all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're really good. Um, my choice, uh, my favorite of the whole bunch would be True Romance. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the film that was uh, scripted by Quentin Tarantino played an important role in that I think the money that came from that script uh, was integral towards Quentin being able to do Pulp Fiction yeah well but, and, and it has Brad Pitt's classic line don't condescend me man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic cast I mean yeah. you've got Gary Oldman playing a, a, is it a Jamaican White yeah, drug right. lord, yeah. <laughs> the Drexel man, you know, yeah. uh, fantastic. And, but I loved, there were a couple of things that I liked about it. I, I, I thought the, the, the romance that existed between Rosanna Arquette and Christian Slater was really well done. Right. In terms of just having two characters kind of hang out on screen, which we don't really get too often. That's something that's kind of a throwback to the 1950s and 1960s when you'd have Clark Gable and others kind of just hang out for a moment. It happened one night. Being right. an example of that. Uh, and then also the fact that this was a huge ensemble cast. So many big names from Christopher Walken to Brad Pitt, as you mentioned, to Brinson Pinchot, to Samuel L. Jackson, to Gary Oldman. Uh, I thought Tony Scott did an amazing job of balancing all that, mm -hmm. of everybody having James Gandolfini, for crying out loud. Yeah, that's right. Everybody, yeah. you, you think of each actor, and they really are a standout performance in a movie full of standout performances. That he did a great job in terms of giving Rosanna uh, Arquette, her character, um, the Alabama, faces <laughs> like Beach, uh, the yeah. ability to kind of stand up and be a woman who fends for herself when she's being thrown through you know, a bathroom glass wall. and Oh, right. just amazing, that kind of stuff. But the, the other reason that I love it, is that I think it also contains one of the greatest moments in movie history, that mm -hmm. wonderful standoff between Christopher Walken right. and Dennis Hopper, the, the whole conversation about the Sicilian lineage. Yeah. Beautifully done. Just the, both actors being able to play off each other, I think, wonderfully, but also just Tony Scott being able to, in the middle of all this madness, all of his movies have been very fast, very frenetic. Yeah. Here he just takes a brief moment and uses the beautiful Lacme music, which yeah. harkens back to the hunger. Ah, it's just 
a beautiful yeah. moment in cinema, and I think just one of the greatest for for a man who's known for blockbusters. I felt that that was a fantastic cinematic two to force. Just I love it. Yeah. Well, I, I love that movie too. I love that movie too, and I you know there's a lot of Tony Scott uh, that I that I really liked. Uh, you know things like the the hunger really resonates with me. Um, that that opening scene with Peter Murphy from Bauhaus singing Bella Lugosi's Dead in this cage. And then it cuts to like these amazing close-ups of Susan Sarandon's face with those great glasses on and curls of smoke and uh, Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie with those little glasses on. Love all that stuff. And 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 then the, just the weird stuff with the monkeys. I mean, it's just such an incredible <laughs> opening, right? It'll, it'll really stay with you. Yeah, uh, I, I think Crimson Tide is a fantastic thriller. Um, but you mentioned uh, a, a number of times uh, about the actors in in Tony Scott's uh, A True Romance, and I think it's forgotten sometimes that he was a really uh, interesting director of actors as well. You have Denzel Washington, one of the leading movie stars of his generation, uh, a, a, a continued box office draw even. 25 years after his debut and he could work with anybody that he wants and yet chose to make four films with Tony Scott, uh, most recently Unstoppable, but you know, Crimson Tide and, and a, a couple of others, uh, The Taking of Pelham, One, Two, Three, and Men on Fire. So, you know, I, I, I wanted to sort of uh, look a little bit at, at the casting of his movies. And I was trying to think, you know, the, the, the stuff that's popular of his so often is the really kind of muscular filmmaking, the action movies and stuff. But I wanted to talk about it, and I'm going to choose, and I know I'm going to lose this week, but I'm going out on a high note, I think. Uh, I'm choosing Domino, a movie called Domino. Wow, okay. Yeah, and yeah. Now, now Domino is a movie that I chose for uh, for a couple of reasons. It is, um, it, it's, it's over-caffeinated which I kind of love and I think fits the story. It is the story of Domino Harvey, who was uh, a real life, it's based on a true story. The, the real life woman died just a month or so before the movie came out. But uh, it is Domino Harvey, she was a Ford model. She was uh, a, a sort of a, a bit of a socialite. She was the daughter of Lawrence Harvey, who was a famous British actor. And of course, what do you do when you're the daughter of a famous movie star and you are uh, a Ford model. Well, you become a bounty hunter later on in your life when you're in your 30s. And so this is the perfect setup for a Tony Scott movie. But it is, to my mind, almost experimental in its form. I mean, the editing is so frenetic. Uh, the desaturation of the color, the, the, the kind of processing that he did from scene to scene, no two scenes really look alike in this movie. Even in, in terms of sometimes within a scene, uh, the color changes, the exposure changes. It really is almost like watching an extremely big budget experimental movie. So I love all that about it. Then you have uh, Kira Knightley as Domino Harvey. She's fantastic yeah. in this, and, and she she holds the screen amid all this experimental kind of uh, frenetic editing that that uh, Tony Scott's throwing at her. But then he wants to. Uh, uh, sort of added some humor to this story that is frankly a little bit tragic and a little bit overwrought by times. So who does he cast? But former Beverly Hills 90210 stars Ian Zierling and Brian Austin Green playing themselves as sort of the abused hosts of a reality TV show. I love it. I love that, uh, you know, he would have the kind of self-awareness 
to find two stars that pro- very believably could be the hosts of a reality TV show <laughs> and, and throw them in here. I just, I, I like that theory. And, and I love those two guys in it because they were uh, playing guys that were desperately trying to make a comeback and the whole thing. They add some humor to the show, to the movie. Um, it is fast. It's outrageous. It's experimental. It's got Kira Knightley. And as I told you recently, I've decided I like her face after seeing her uh, in Seeking Your Friend for the End of the World. So Domino was my choice for uh, my, my, my favorite, or at least certainly as I sit here today, right this second, right. my most memorable uh, Tony Scott film. Yeah, it's it's a fun film. I, I don't think that uh, it got nearly as much attention as it deserved, maybe because it came out at a time in which you had a lot of um hyper movies that were supposed to be about crime and wacky gangsters and stuff like that it was yeah. like the aces movie that came out you know but yeah, smoking aces and all that stuff yeah. yeah yeah but his stands out i think you're absolutely right in that you could almost make an argument that what he did because the rest of his films like top gun even beverly hill cop hills cop 2 are very conventional yeah. in terms of you know you've got big action that he ramps up very very well better than any other director but it's very hollywood whereas this it's almost like a takashi Miike film oh yeah yeah it's kind of japanese in that sense of just being insane just yeah well and and, and his technique on this movie is insane i mean the the what he does to the film stock and and all the 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 little you know bits and pieces that he throws in uh, and I haven't seen it for a while, but I'm, I'm, I'm going from memory here. And I had a look at some clips online, and I'm like, this movie is truly nuts. And it really is. I mean, considering whatever it costs, we're talking $50, $60 million probably, it's essentially yeah. an experimental film with some big stars in it. I, it and, and I think just for having the balls alone to go to the <laughs> studio and go, this is the film I've decided to make. Thank you for all the nice money. Here it is. Thank you. That, that one deserves to win. <laughs> well, uh, what was it? I think Joe Carnahan was tweeting, um, yeah. who, the director who did The Grey, that he, he used to get handwritten messages from Tony Scott saying, don't let them change a thing. You know, right. so, yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, well that's Joe, excellent. Joe, Joe Carnahan was mentored by, uh, by Tony Scott. And uh, um, if you check out his Twitter feed, he reacted in a very visceral way to Tony Scott's death. So it's, wow. it's, it's interesting reading. Okay, cool. Well, here we are at the end of our 14th episode. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Please go to our website, hailyouzombies.com. Click to vote. Send in some suggestions. Uh, Tell us what your favorite Tony Scott film is. And and while you can, buy those potions on eBay because they're not going to be around for much longer. (laughs) Yeah, you only got a couple more days and that's it. All right. Well, see you next week. See you next week.